Hello and welcome to this podcast, just one in a series on the early 19th century German writer Heinrich von Kleist. My name is Sean Allen and I'm from the University of Warwick. And in today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Professor Ricardo Schmidt and Dr. Stephen Howe, both from the University of Exeter, about the philosophical influences on Kleist and the intellectual climate in which he lived and worked. Born in 1777, in the provincial Prussian town of Frankfurt and der Oder, Heinrich von Kleist lived through one of the most turbulent phases in 19th century European history. He lived through the French Revolution, the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte, and he witnessed at first hand the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire. And so I'd like to turn to you first, Stephen Howe, and perhaps you could give us some kind of broad overview of the kind of intellectual climate in which Kleist grew up. Well, I suppose, without wishing to split hairs too much, I suppose we should start with a kind of a kind of caveat, really, and say that the Age of Enlightenment represented a range of projects that developed within, often developed within localised settings, and it's quite difficult to strip that back to a single, unified pan-European model. I mean, that out of the way, I think there are certain common elements that we can pull out so as to present a kind of general picture, as to give a clue to the intellectual climate and this general idea of enlightenment. I think broadly speaking the Age of Enlightenment refers to a cultural movement of European intellectuals in the late 17th and 18th centuries which sought to mobilise the power of reason to advance knowledge, reform society and establish a new system of ethics and aesthetics. I think certainly those in the intellectual vanguard of the movement saw their task as a kind of a crusade, really, to lead man towards progress. And out of this period of doubtful tradition, superstition, intolerance, tyranny, irrationality, which they associated with the Dark Ages, hence the need for enlightenment. So basically, the use of human reason could emancipate human beings from being prisoners of superstition and false belief. Exactly. And then there's, there's two definitions which I think we could perhaps quote which give an idea that sums up the the aims and objectives of the movement. Uh, The first one is from the French philosopher uh, Denis Diderot who wrote that quote all things must be examined, debated, investigated without exception. We must ride roughshod over all these ancient puerilities, overturn the barriers that reason never erected and give back to the arts and sciences the liberty that is so precious to them. And the second and perhaps the most famous definition of enlightenment comes from the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, who wrote that enlightenment was mankind's final coming of age, the emancipation of the human consciousness from immature states of ignorance and error. And so it seems that the primary objective of the movement um, was really to try and understand the natural world and man's place within the natural world on the basis of rational inquiry, without having to turn to religious beliefs And so the age of reason opened up new avenues for scientific inquiry. So Newton's science first really begins to exert its impact. Texts by Descartes, Pascal, Leibniz um, really paved the way for the development of modern physics, mathematics, technology, um, and in politics and philosophy. It also prompted major developments and the emergence of 
universal ideals of humanity and cosmopolitan sensibilities, um, and also new ideas of freedom, self-determination and democracy, which provided a framework then for the revolutions in America. I was going to say, so the French Revolution is, in a sense, the political instantiation of Enlightenment ideas. The 19th century, of course, is often seen as the Romantic era in Germany, and Kleist is sometimes, rightly or wrongly, described as a Romantic German writer. Enlightenment and Romanticism are often juxtaposed and seen as the opposite of each other. But I think it isn't quite as simple as that, is it, Ricardo? Well, there were some famous Romantic writers who were also trained as scientists or engineers, uh, technically educated. So, um, basically, what they were trying to do is uh, to react against uh, an often trivialised um, enlightenment, where uh, enlightenment uh, had been turned into something utilitarian, because as opposed to the rather lofty aims, uh, in, in the, particularly in the early 18th century, um, what was happening, especially in, in Germany, uh, Austria, was enlightenment from above, uh, that rulers introduced enlightenment often against the people's wishes. Um, Hoffmann very nicely satirised that in Klein Sachers, um, where uh, enlightenment means to uh, cut down forests uh, and um, make rivers navigable and to... Um, plant um, avenues and basically really uh, make everything uh, economically valuable, viable. So the domestication of nature, if you like. Yes, and the exploitation of nature. So against that uh, a kind of attitude, uh, the Romantics um, were arguing that um, nature isn't completely calculable. And they were trying to turn to the dark side of nature, to the mysteries, the things that weren't uh, solved yet. Things like mesmerism, hypnosis, you would say nowadays, uh, the forerunner of uh, psychoanalysis. But uh, just like uh, what Steve said about the Enlightenment, Romanticism is also not simply a unified uh, movement in Germany. Uh, one could say in Germany it started in the literary sphere in the late 1790s with Wackenroda antiques, uh, the heartfelt outpourings of uh, an art-loving friar, mm. and um, in which they argue that uh, art is to be treated uh, like religion. Uh, you uh, gain insight uh, through art, uh, you pay reverence to art, so uh, it, it was part of the secularisation movement. Thank you, Ricardo. I'd like to return now to Kleist's relationship to the Enlightenment, and in particular his relationship to the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. Although Kleist lived for some time in the same city as Immanuel Kant, Königsberg, we can be pretty sure that he never met Kant himself. Nonetheless, I think there can be no doubt that he was very profoundly influenced by Kant's epistemology in particular. Many critics have referred to what's termed sometimes a Kant crisis in Kleist's life around about the time 1801. And this he expresses in a letter to his fiancée, Wilhelmina von Senger, in a letter of 22nd of March 1801, where he summarises the impact of Kant's philosophy on him when he says, if everyone saw the world through green glasses, 
they would be forced to judge that everything they saw was green and could never be sure whether their eyes saw things as they really are or did not add something of their own to what they saw. And so it is with our intellect. We can never be certain that that which we call truth is really truth or whether it does not merely appear so to us. I think there's a general consensus that Kleist's reading of Kant is, to say the least, somewhat idiosyncratic. Perhaps, Stephen Howe, you could just give us a quick overview of what it was that Kant was trying to argue. Okay, I, mean, I think the first thing to say is that Kant is certainly one of the most complex and difficult of modern thinkers, and it's, it's incredibly difficult to discuss his theories without using his own language, which is incredibly complex and, and at times rather obscure. Um, if we try and strip it back in very basic terms then what Kant sets himself in his critique of pure reason um, is to try and address the problem of objective knowledge and to try and set the limitations on objective knowledge. Um, and he's, he's really engaging with two contrasting ideas from predecessors, one being the view of somebody like Leibniz, who says that the individual can have objective knowledge of the world, independent of any perspective, the other being... David Hume, who argued the opposite and said that we can have objective knowledge of nothing. And in essence, at least, what Kant does is to mediate a position between these two, two points and to show that neither experience nor reason alone can provide knowledge and that knowledge is only really possible in their synthesis. Kant's point is that it's impossible to know the world as it is in itself irrespective of the perspective of the individual observer. The individual can know the world, but what he or she knows of it, the world of appearance, the world of appearance, bears the indelible mark of that point of view. And that is, in very crude terms, I think, what Kant is trying to say. Well, I think you've summarised very eloquently a very, very complex idea. My question to you would be then... Kleist's metaphor of the green glasses, which seems to emphasise a position of radical subjectivity, you presumably would see that as a false interpretation of Kant. I think so, yeah. If one takes what Kleist says in that letter as his interpretation of Kant, then I think, I think you would have to be inclined to say that he's misinterpreted it somewhat and taken a, a position which is more radical in terms of radical subjectivity, and also more radically sceptical about the possibilities of knowledge than Kant himself suggests, and one which is probably slightly closer to Hume, I would say. The only other point I think is worth bearing in mind is that Kleist wrote this in a letter to Wilhelmina. He doesn't seem to have a particularly high estimation of her intellectual capacities, um, for want of a, a, better a better word. And I'm just wondering whether... It, it's also thinkable that Kleist might have presented a kind of simplified version of what he's experienced in terms that he thinks Wilhelmina might understand. But it's a very productive misunderstanding because, uh, you know, what Kant was after is the limitations of knowledge of all humanity. He wasn't after one human being from another. That's what Kleist is doing, uh, that creative misunderstanding. Whereas he, uh, Kant was after, well... You know, horses have a different perspective uh, or, or various insects, as we now know, because their eyes are positioned in a different way from ours. Uh, so they see the world literally differently. 
Um, but uh, that was not what uh, Kleisler understood. He had understood it on this uh, level of individuality. Um, and this creative understanding, misunderstanding uh, was uh, ever so fruitful for his work because uh, there are these misunderstandings between people abounding in his work and that makes his work so fascinating. Well, whatever it was that prompted the Kant crisis in Kleist's life, one of the results of it was nonetheless that he stopped working for the Prussian Civil Service, the Technische Deputation, and embarked on an uh, extended period of travelling. Like many writers of his generation, Kleist was fascinated by the idea of going to Paris to see what the post-revolutionary capital of France looked like. But when he actually got there in July 1801, he was pretty appalled by what he experienced there. He writes back, Where will destiny lead this nation? God alone knows she is riper for fall than any other in Europe. I'd like to come back to that experience of Paris itself and uh, ask you, Ricardo, what it was about Paris that so appalled him and what convinced him that this nation was riper for fall than any other in Europe. Well, one thing was moral degeneracy. Um, he wrote that uh, incest uh, and uh, various kinds of um, father and daughter, mother and son, uh, it's commonplace, uh, one doesn't even talk about it in France, uh, one has examples of it. So this uh, sense of immorality was one strong one. Um, another one was um, Paris was uh, the modern capital and uh, the modern city with its anonymity with people uh, not knowing each other in the streets uh, was another thing that hit him. The, the anonymity of modernity uh, was not something he took to as liberation but as isolation or as I don't want to know. And um, thirdly, um, he had expected to find Rousseau's ideas realised uh, in Paris. And he found uh, there was just a lot of thoughtlessness exemplified in the example of uh, the balloon. The balloon uh, that uh, for the celebration of Bastille Day uh, was to rise and it had iron rings around it which were to be thrown off. And he said, well, uh, one could calculate if uh, below this balloon uh, there's a mass of people below and this iron ring falls down, that will kill a few people. So this sense, a human life is worthless, uh, is something he had very strongly in Paris and, and he reacted against. And he said, um, Rousseau is every uh, second word of the French and how would he be ashamed if he saw what's been done allegedly in his name? However negative Kleist's experiences of Parisian life in 1801 may have been, I think it can't be denied that he was fascinated by French culture. It's well known, I think, that he uh, was a, uh, a reader of Montaigne. But I think one of the philosophers who's influenced him most has probably been Jean-Jacques Rousseau. In the light of Ricardo's discussion of Christ's feelings about moral degeneracy, I'm very much reminded of the opening lines of Rousseau's classic work, Emile, which starts, God makes all things good. Man meddles with them, and they become corrupt. wonder whether perhaps you could expand on that a little bit and tell us what the key ideas were of Rousseau that Kleist picked up and ran with in particular. 
I mean, I think Rousseau was arguably the first thinker to really put the Enlightenment faith in human progress into question. Certainly the first to do it in a fashion which captured both intellectual and popular attention. So in his first major work, which was the Discourse on the Sciences and the Arts, which he published in 1750, he first really countered the view of recent history as a progression or as a linear progression towards a future morally better in proportion to its technological advancement. Um, and then five years later, in his second major work, The Discourse on Inequality, he really developed that reflection into a far more detailed and far deeper critique of civilization, its trappings, which really does unfold into a quite devastating attack on modernity. And underlying that particular viewpoint that Rousseau developed, and in fact underlying everything he writes, is this view that man is naturally good and is corrupted in society. That is, Rousseau refers to it as the, the first great principle of his philosophy. So I think the letters that Kleist writes from Paris, exactly as Ricardo just said, are very, very heavily influenced by, by the, the viewpoint that Rousseau develops. Um, at various points in his writings, Rousseau really spotlights the depravity of modern civilization as it manifests itself in the major cities, especially Paris, the artifice, the superficiality, the anonymity, and this almost complete absence of humane moral values that, that Christ seems to have taken on board, really, that he writes in those letters um, from Paris. And there are an, an, a lot of striking similarities in the letters, verbal echoes, uh, both in terms of what Kleist says and also how he says it. There's certain elements that are borrowed, I think, from Rousseau's rhetorical style as well, the way he presents these ideas, in terms of this really stark um, juxtaposition of modern society against this idealised view of nature. And there's, there's various direct references to Rousseau himself. He writes at the same time he's writing to Wilhelmina, advising her to read Emile. And so I don't think there's any doubt that during this particular period in his life, Christ was reading Rousseau intensively, and also, like so many of his contemporaries, he really saw Rousseau as a figure with whom he could identify as someone who felt this sense of isolation and alienation in modern society. I think what's interesting with Christ as well is the attempt that he tries to take on these ideals and almost try to live them out. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of domestic ideals that Rousseau outlines in Emile or in his novel La Nouvelle Louise, Christ actually looks to put these into practice from as following the footsteps of Rousseau's heroes. He, he um, sets out to move to Switzerland, for example, to become a farmer. Um, and also in his letters to Wilhelmina, which, as we've already heard, outline this model of a kind of uh, mutually contingent happiness based on a division of gender roles, a really strict division of gender roles, which is justifiably notorious to modern eyes, um, based on this idea that the man is an active citizen, the woman is to be educated, to be obedient wife mm. and virtuous mother. And that, as well, comes very much from, from ideas that Rousseau lays down in the final chapter of Emile. Well, I think that what comes across very clearly from what you and Ricardo have been saying is just how steeped Kleist was in the traditions and discourses of his day 
and how important they were for his own writing. Thank you very much, Ricardo Schmidt and Stephen Howe.